Hi everyone, it's Chris Lasarenko from Revolutions Per Movie. The show is a completely independent affair, so if you feel like supporting the show, the best way is to go over to patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie, where in exchange for your support, you can get weekly bonus Revolution Per Movie episodes, stickers, membership cards, upcoming guests include Anne Magnuson of Bong Water, Bob Burt of Sonic Youth and Pussy Galore, Jerry Casali of Devo, and Homer Flynn of The Cryptid Corporation, representing the band The Residents. So please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie. And thank you everyone for listening. Enjoy the show. My guest this week is Dave Markey. Dave has sustained a truly independent career in the shadow of Hollywood and against the backdrop of corporate America, just shy of four decades. As a filmmaker, photographer, and musician, Markey brings together underground music, experimental cinema, and contemporary culture in a direct and insightful way. His body of work is also historically significant, representing a unique record of the punk scene in Southern California through the 1980s and into the 1990s. His feature films include the acclaimed Sonic Youth Nirvana tour documentary, 1991, The Year Punk Broke, which also features the Ramones, Dinosaur Jr., and Babes in Toyland, the Los Angeles punk scene Super 8 cult classics, the slog movie, Desperate Teenage Love Dolls, and its sequel, Love Dolls Superstar, Shonen Life Blast Off, the international film festival favorite, The Reenactors, Dinosaur Jr.'s Bug Live at 9.30, and the feature-length documentary on the legendary Los Angeles punk band, Circle Jerks, entitled My Career as a Jerk. Dave Markey has also directed music videos for Red Cross, Sonic Youth, Bob Mould, Beat Puppets, The Flesh Eaters, The Muffs, The Black Lips, Black Flag, Pat Smear, and Mud Honey, amongst others. Dave is also a published author with the critically acclaimed books We Got Power, Hardcore Punk Scenes from 1980s Southern California, and the recently published Scenes from Inside. His DIY aesthetic continues to drive him, as well as inspire a new generation of filmmakers, musicians, and artists. And it's my great pleasure to welcome the revolutions per movie... Dave Markey. Hi, Dave. Hi, Chris. So good to see you. I met you in the late 80s when we were working with Steve Doughton on a film in the Grand Canyon. Bedrock City. Yes, exactly. And your films were so important to us. We were re-watching Love Doll Superstars constantly and the hell cow house and it and it obviously informed steve's work as well but you were like the first real filmmaker i ever met in my life and it was so exciting to spend time with you and i just had some questions about the early work first of all how did you get people to show up again and again to be in your films was that difficult to get people to show up and be like all right we need to shoot here on this day and you got to be who you are well you see i started as a child making films in my neighborhood in Santa Monica. And I was really good at wrangling kids and, uh-huh. and getting people to do stuff, getting neighborhood kids to do stuff. And I think that just extended out into, you know, uh, when I got immersed in, in uh, the LA music scene here in, in the early eighties. And I just sort of had already had practice with, kind of, you know, uh, finding the weirdest kids that I could and and making them do stuff. Right. And I just sort of applied that aesthetic continually into uh, when I was sort of in the whole LA punk world. 
which came first? The zine, We Got Power compilations, Painted Willy, the films. What was the trajectory of you within this creative scene? In order, it would have started with me making regular 8mm films in 1974 Okay, uh, at the age of 11, um, making a film I called The Devil's Exorcist, which was <laughs> my attempt at one-upping the Exorcist without, of course, seeing the film, only imagining what was in it. Uh, was too young to see it. My parents wouldn't let me see it. Uh, you know, raised... At that point, I was in Catholic school, and uh, right. you know, my mother absolutely forbade me seeing Satan on the big screen. So, in my mind, uh, I made my own version of it as as a child, and that's what got me started in film. And went on from there, just you know, kind of putzed around the neighborhoods I lived in in Santa Monica, and sort of honed my craft. Really, I was just a kid that had kind of boundless energy for. For shooting stuff on film, also taking photographs, and also in a few years publishing my own neighborhood newspaper, which predated my fanzine work, okay. which was similarly the same thing. Really, me a typewriter, um, writing stuff, and uh, so like by the time you know 1980 rolls around. I'm getting more involved in, in, in the stuff that was happening at the time in L.A. And really sort of warmed up in the late 70s, getting turned on to different music. I always loved music. I mean, I grew up listening to, you know, 93KHJ, which was the 70s encapsulated. Mostly bubblegum pop to, you know, the occasional, you know, heavy uh, band hitting on the pop level, like say Grand Funk Railroad's Locomotion, right. uh, you know, uh, 93KHJ played everything. And I loved all of that music. But then I really, really took a turn towards the later part of the 80s through the band that we're, we're discussing today, Devo. Yes. And it had everything to do with seeing them as a 14 year old on Saturday Night Live. Me too. As was the first. The first time uh, a lot of people got to see them. Yeah, it was ground zero for me. There's like my life before Devo and my life afterwards. And I think right. Saturday Night Live, that was pivotal. And one of the cool things about them playing on Saturday Night Live was they did two songs. They did Satisfaction. But when they came back to do Jocko Homo, they showed part of their very first film in the beginning, which Chuck Statler, who we're going to talk about, directed. And it mm -hmm. felt like a Saturday Night Live short. I was like, oh, this is like what? they got Devo to be like Albert Brooks got Devo to be in some weird 16 millimeter thing, you know, and it that's cool. Not knowing that this even existed. That was 78. That was 78. And around the same time, I think maybe Devo might have been the first, but there was also appearances on there by Talking Heads, Elvis Costello, Captain Beefheart, the B-52s. Uh, you know, it was clear that something really exciting was happening. And as I got into my teen years, I was led headfirst into it, really directly through Devo. It's true. And I remember when Duty Now for the Future came out, it came with an inner sleeve. And on the inside, it said, 
This still is from The Men Who Make the Music, a Devo documentary videotape produced by Chuck Statler, included in DevoVision, a compilation of Devo's films and videotapes available through Time Life video cassettes. And I was like, what's a video cassette? (laughs) And how do I, like, there's films like of Comeback Johnny, they're listing the things on it. I was, my mind was just racing. That was the very first VHS tape I acquired. Amazing. And it was a double copy of The Men Who Make the Music. And I still have that VHS tape 45 years later, uh, what, I got it in the early 80s, before I even had a VHS player. I think I finally got a player around like 1984, but somehow I took it to a friend's house that had a VCR and played it, was completely entranced by the music, not just the music videos, but the segments in between. Absolutely. The videos were, were like, we, you know, we had Boogie Boy and General Boy conversing, or we had Rod Reamer from Big Entertainment and Big Daddy Know-It-All, just sort of like obviously just skewering the 70s in the music industry at the time in such a way that really spoke to my new understanding of how the world worked. And for a 14-year-old mind to get into that, it was all so informative on so many different levels and, and so influential and yeah it it was uh those early chuck statler films like for the secret agent man satisfaction and whatnot that just really blew me away and so informed my aesthetic to come which really was just sort of upending uh, everything that i had sort of done before and and in a sense you know I, i i at any chance I got it, it, through music video work or short film work, I did pay tribute to that influence of Chuck Stadler. And I did sort of basically rip him off. <laughs> well, you're not alone because I did too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was just that attitude. It was just so from a different world. It was just sort of like a calling card to a new reality. Absolutely. And, uh, and it was kind of angry and hostile you know in, in a sense the way it was skewering what we had really grown up in in that uh, 70s era uh, it was just really turning everything on its side and, and, and parodying it and uh, that sense of parody which also I was getting from early Saturday Night Live as well sure of course and maybe say like the Zuckerberg brothers uh Kentucky Fried movie, just that kind of crude, mean satire that was kind of prevalent in in the 70s. A lot of stuff that you look at now that would just wouldn't fly for one second in culture, just, you know, straight to the cancel bin. But I mean, that was the world we grew up in. And that was what was there, what was available. I felt like Devo was the first band that gave me a bit of a chip on my shoulder. Like they pushed back. And so I pushed back. It was the first band that I got made fun of for liking. Um, mm-hmm. And I was like. <laughs> and that went on for years. Yes. Yeah, being called Devo and a waiver. I was like, yeah, fuck and- you. I love it. You know, you're wrong. And uh, even when they started getting 
played on MTV, it's kind of amazing to think that things like love without anger or beautiful world or through being cool are really upsetting, really difficult message videos. Absolutely. Especially beautiful world. Yeah. At a time when people are like, oh, they've kind of sold out. You're like, uh, I don't know. Like this is read between the lines. Exactly. Um, there was just this alienation that was just prevalent that, that, that I kind of glommed onto. I just felt, I felt really alienated and, 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 uh, also curious to just, you know, look elsewhere for information, for, for ideas, for, you know, it was such a fertile seed planted of creativity in, in my young teenage mind. And, and it was really, you know, those guys doing. Well, I'm super excited because I feel like I've probably seen this film more than any film in my life. Like, I, I love this. So I'm so excited to talk to you about it. But before we get into kind of the beats of film or the videotape, uh, I wanted to ask you, when did you first get to see Devo live? I didn't see them live until the summer of 1980. And I would have been 16 years old. Prior to that, I did not have any live music experiences outside of maybe seeing bands play during lunchtime in my high school. Okay. You know, and living in LA, some of those bands that I saw went on to be huge. <laughs> That's so amazing. Like Rat, for example. Right. You know, Rat played in my high school doing Aerosmith covers. No one was paying attention. Right. But I mean, I didn't really care about that, but checking it out anyways. And of course, this music coming up, it, it it seemed to be recognized by people around. All the jocks, all the normies were just like instantly threatened by it. And this is why they would look at me and maybe a couple of my other friends and just yell, Devo! <laughs> you know, and then maybe a couple of years later, whip it! And uh, uh, Devo was often followed by Devo faggot. It was absolutely just, you know, being yelled at you from a Camaro, just zooming down a street, blasting ACDC Highway to Hell. Yeah. But it was just like, there was this chasm going on. And it was just like, being a part of this big fuck you to all the squares. <laughs> yeah. Plain and simple. I mean, it's not like teenagers hadn't gone through this rebellious concept for de decades previously, you know, so in the 50s with the beats and whatnot of course yeah. you know but being a young kid not really knowing much about any of that this was my uh entrance into just a different way of being amazing same here yeah. growing up in the northwest devo i just was like they're ohio they're ohio they're ohio but to me they also ended up being celebrated in los angeles and california with the skater culture and and like landing there and being part of it did you get a feeling that like, oh, Devo is part of my city, my culture? Oh, absolutely. Especially by the time Freedom of Choice came out. Okay. That was the show that I saw in the summer of 1980 at the Santa Monica Civic. It was the Freedom of Choice tour. The album had just dropped. Wow. The year before, I had gotten, the first Devo record I got was Duty Now for the Future. I even had that before I had the first album. And uh, I just, that record. Duty Now for the Future 
Ooh, yeah. Uh, getting that as a 14 year old, that really, really was. And what a great record, everything about it, the material, the production, the way it's done. And then like, you know, then they turn a corner and deliver freedom of choice where they're going to have their first pop hit. Yeah. And it still was great. It, it was different, decidedly different tone in the music, but freedom of choice is also magical in its own way. Absolutely. They also, there's a great target DVD target video DVD of the 1980 tour. And it's so funny. They come out of the gate. They're like, we're getting whip it out of the way. They opened up with it. I saw that. Yeah. Uh, the show that I saw the Santa Monica Civic was the day before they shot that video up in Petaluma. Yeah. So, Oh my God. Amazing. So they come out, they're like, we're doing all the freedom of choice stuff right now. And they're really minimal in their music and, uh, and movement. But as the show goes on, it gets angrier and uglier and more perverse, swelling, itching brain and Jocko homo. And they're like, like their clothes are getting ripped off and they're starting to move more close to the edge of the stage and actually going out into the audience and like standing on people and walking over people. And I just thought it was so masterful for them to do that. And then, so I just imagine people being like, hey, I'm going to bring my date to this new wave band, right? Before their encore, they have that film of Boogie Boy and General Boy in an industrial plant. And Boogie Boy's ball goes missing and he puts his head into an industrial uh, like press and he gets his head smashed off. There's blood everywhere. And then they unwrap him, his bandage in a hospital. And it's like really, it's like very Derek Jarman, very spooky, like underlit 16 millimeter film. They start underdoing these, these bandages really slowly in this hospital. And it's Boogie Boy's mask reversed inside out. And it's just blood and everything's just gushing from it. You can hear the people in this Target video audience just being like, oh, my God, like, no. And then he comes out with the mask reverse and does a song. And you're like that. They're a top 40 band at this point. It's amazing. Well, I think I think it just was starting to break. OK, <laughs> I don't think I don't think, you know, Whip It was a huge hit yet. But, OK, I mean, at the time, you know, there was no real matrix to create a hit. This was before MTV. This was, uh, you know, there was only a few radio stations in the United States at the time that would even put Devo on their playlist. Okay. We're talking 1980. Of course, you know, there was uh, K-Rock in Southern California. And there was a few handful of other stations, I know, in the Pacific Northwest and on the East Coast and in Chicago and whatnot. And uh, somehow that song just clicked and yeah. really uh, brought them to the next label, uh, next level. I think Devo had honed their act in the previous years, playing smaller venues in Los Angeles, like the Starwood and the Roxy and, you know, playing uh, the, the Bouvet Gardens up in San Francisco. And they had really sort of honed their act. And, uh, you know, I think the evolution of their songwriting from the first album to the second album to the third album, yeah. you know, it, 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 every every record is new. It's a new experience. Yeah. And they're stepping it up. And that all took place really in a short 
period of time. Oh my gosh! So yeah. What what a period of, of of time it was for them as artists, and of course they they, they had started in what seventy three. So Chuck Statler had originally convinced them to document what they were doing. They were getting ready to throw in the towel. I think there were the Devo Sextet, and they were performing in the early 70s as this art noise collective. And there was yet another Mother's Bob brother who went on later to work for Moog, who was like building electronic drum sets for them and was part of it. And they were all about clearing a room. You know, they were just like, we want to push back against the hippie culture and all this stuff. They had experienced the Kent State shootings. Their lives had changed forever. They were being reactionary, but they also at the same time kind of wanted love. They kind of were like, no one likes us. This is kind of a waste of time. And Chuck Statler, who was a, a filmmaker friend of theirs said, hey, before you quit, let's make a film documenting the idea of Devo and de-evolution and some of your songs. And that's what they did. And the film was called In the Beginning Was the End. It has uh, Chaco Homo, an early version that was also on Stiff Records later on, and also a different version of Secret Agent Man. And it started playing festivals and kind of blew up because it was so weird. And again, music videos were not a thing like this, where it was like storytelling and costumes and cool sets. So Devo's career really got started through filmmaking. And they would play the film before they would play in, you know, the mid 70s and late 70s before they had a deal. This was kind of their calling card for people to be like, oh, I think I know what you are. I see it. I've heard it, Um, which is remarkable. It makes total sense because they were completely visual concept. I mean, you know, uh, I when I saw them in 80, they they opened up with. 16, 16 millimeter films being projected. Yes, you know, at, the, at the Santa Monica Civic, and they showed all of those early uh, Chuck Statler films, and they showed, you know, all the content that became uh, the men who make the music, and then later on, sort of reworked as uh, the complete truth about devolution. But uh, it was really that men who make the music VHS tape. Yes. And uh, seeing those films projected at their show that that I think really adhered me to the band even more. It just it was just like this was the band for me. So what what about Chuck's aesthetic did you take? I mean, what were the things that beyond the music that visually you were soaking in? His use of just low budget film techniques uh also obviously utilizing cheap masks obviously gotten from either you know uh, sex fetish shops or gag gift shop you know just kind of these hideous scary masks and people wearing them and, and, and band members wearing them and this, just the cutaways like that one shot where there's the girl dancing in slow motion and it's the guy wearing that creepy 50s cocktail lounge mask just yeah. that that stuff just really hit me like this is just crazy this is just like really wild and and, and 
I, I had not seen anything like that. And it was just, perhaps it was just the timing. It was just yeah. being that young, impressionable age and then wandering in and just seeing this completely twisted, unique kind of stuff that obviously they put together with very little resources. That spoke yep. to me. Uh, and that's, you know, what I was doing without really being conscious of it because being a kid filmmaker, working, you know, the alleyways of, of Santa Monica. Uh, totally. Uh, I, I, I really related to it. And then it further, you know, pushed me to, to go just down that rabbit hole of weirdness. Yeah, he was great at using low light maybe just like a monochromatic background. His films remind me of John Huston's Fat City a bit. Like if John Huston had taken Fat City and made a bunch of music videos and some of the bars and the hotel lobbies, it's like got a real weird darkness to it. He's also seems to be a really big fan of industrial sites, smash and grab filmmaking, like, okay, let, there's this really cool stairwell. Let's go over here and we'll shoot in this. And now somebody's brother says we can go shoot here for an hour. Um, and I love that about that. The factory setting in, in, yeah, the factory setting in that Secret Agent Man clip, for example. Yeah, it's really unique. And as somebody who had not grown up in, you know, or around industry, it was also quite exotic to see something where you're like, what the fuck has that many pipes and levers and dials? It just, it seemed like such an extension of their musicality. Yeah. So you get the videotape. It starts with Jocko Homo. That was the clip that was on Saturday Night Live. It was Boogie Boy running up the staircase. Right. You know, the big mural that said something like, shine on Akron. And shine on America. Upstairs, goes into the office of General Boy, which was, of course, played famously by his father yeah uh and you know using using family members and friends and we that's exactly what i was doing at, you know it it around the same time really starting in in 74 but i was just a child i was you know really had very few influences in at that time and then right. it would take a few years until i would see something like you know Stabler's early work and just go yeah, this is, this is it. This is, this is sort of what I'm doing, but like, it's even, you know, in a whole, a whole other level of, of, of artistry and just expression. And just, again, the kind of the, the what the fuck feeling that I got from seeing it the first time and trying to just remember that yeah. feeling. And it was really in that feeling where, it all sort of grew. Yeah. That uneasiness, that just the surreal imagery going on. Um, you know, I, I had not seen at that point, you know, whatever the works of Lewis Manuel, or I had not, you know, seen any. Uh, you know, I grew up watching 70s crap TV and uh, was informed by that. <laughs> so, uh, Again, the cultural push that, that Devo and Statler were doing, there was just skewing all of that media really, really connected with me. 
it really created a, a sense of unease, as you said, because I had no context either. This, to me, was some of the first experimental filmmaking I'd ever seen in my life. And so yeah. General Boy says every man, mutant, and child will know the truth about de-evolution. Then we head into the Chocohoma video, which is so amazing and creepy again. Uh, I mean, it's obviously some sort of college setting where like a um, like a medical thing where people are sitting around. They can kind of look down on slabs and Mark Brothersbaugh mm -hmm. is just kind of holding court as this professor type person and doing these really his thing where he points on the bump, 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 bump with his finger back and forth. I remember right. that the way Mark moves just being like, what the fuck is that? Like, he's just moving his finger. Yeah, he does this amazing dancing move in that that I don't even know how he did it. He's sort of like dancing in place, but leaning backwards and forward. Like, <laughs> you know, long before uh, David Byrne, maybe, would would, would, would oh, affect yeah. a similar thing. But this is like, yeah, before, of course, the album version, the, the early version of that song. And right. Just, there's just this, this one dance move that, that, that Mother's Bond did. I just baffling and I, yeah. I recently went back and had a look at the stuff i hadn't looked at it in years it's of course firmly imprinted in my brain but <laughs> I, I i took some notes and one of the notes i took was just like that one dancing in place leaning backwards thing that mother's bod does mind-blowing yeah it's like a like a puppet <laughs> there's one point where it looks like he forgets to do it and he's jerked back into it and he puts his hand on his head like Oh, I'm being trapped in this dance that I have no control over. It's so incredible. Again, there was there was nothing like it. And then they cut to the Devo members saying we are Devo with like just, you know, pantyhose over their face. Right. And weird glasses and just Yeah, glasses and pantyhose. It's like you're getting robbed by, you know, <laughs> spacemen that are <laughs> yeah uh, frightening let's let's just say it was frightening it, it, yes it was terrifying in a way and that's what made it so great i totally agree when i saw that saturday night live thing it took me a while to get the courage to buy the record because i was kind of scared of what was going to be on it and it wasn't until i heard dr domeno play blockhead that i was like okay I can I can take this. I'm a big boy now. And I got the record. I do remember people talking about Devo on Saturday Night Live the next week. People being like, oh, I, I watched it with friends at the time and the room just went hostile. People were like, what is this? Like, yeah. The, 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 the kids that I was hanging out with at the time, I, I, I sensed just like, you know, how could they do this to the Rolling Stones? So disrespectful. Right. And here I am thinking, I don't know, this is pretty great, you know? Yeah. And another one of my friends who's sort of the only other person in the room that responded somewhat positively to it said, this is robot rock. Oh, yeah. So I remember that. Thing. Like, they're, they're robots. Of course, this was predating you know, craft work. And, yeah. You know, we are the robots. uh you know, uh, again, that would come, what, 1981, I think? 
computer yeah, room. Yeah, like that's 79 to 81, something discussion. like that. Yeah, yeah. Backward yeah. were a whole separate discussion here, but it does sort of tie into that music at that time that was sort of getting heard and making waves. I remember when that Kraftwerk record came out in, in 80 or 81, like all the, the black kids, the black kids in my school, they loved it. They would, they would dance to it. It was like, you know, such an obvious thing that was going on. And I, also, they also love like the flying lizards too. Like the, the black kids in my school, they were, they were taken to it. They were like, pop locking to it and of course that stuff would become influential into hip-hop right yes and vice versa like devo took hip-hop into some of their videos and so did blondie and definitely parallel artistry going on there and a lot of like what is this i've never heard anything like this yeah you got to remember it in the frame of that time because in that time it's so different when you listen to it now i it Maybe it doesn't sound as off-putting as it did to our ears as early teens in that 70s culture, right? I still think it's upsetting. I think it's, to come out on this videotape with Jocko Homo, which is probably their which is their theme song, but is also not based in pop music. It's really experimental. It's weird. The, the tempos are all over. It's unnerving still, I think, in terms of if you're not if your ears not tuned to it, you're still kind of going to be like, oh, really? Like if that was the first song that somebody's heard by Devo, they may just be like, OK, whatever. If they're not used to something that adventurous. And then after this short film is when some of the new stuff came into that was specifically made for this men who made the music video. They have the uh, Devo corporate anthem playing and they kind of they show uh, General Boy in his office. He's so great in it. He's got such a weird voice. It's like, hi, I, I can't even do it. It's just so yeah. reedy and high. And uh, it was Mark and Bob One's dad. And he just he kills it. He seems so corporate and uncomfortable. Slow 1950s, right? Like, yeah, like that Midwestern corn-fed kind of 50s Americana. When Mark turns to him and says, oh, dad, we're all Devo. I mean, <laughs> he's really talking to his dad. That's, yeah. how, that's how close to home this whole thing is. The general boy's going like, you know, we're here to talk about hairdos and don'ts, you know. Oh, I got it here. He says, you know, it's a wiggly world, but Devo are in the solid, solid state, the way of today. Of course, they're worried about food, about genetics and hairdos and don'ts, about the future. Yeah. And then they go into the ba the day my baby gave me surprise, which might be my favorite Devo song. Uh, I mean, it's hard to pick one, but I just love that song. And again, yeah. it was a video I hadn't seen. Just this weird fake scientific laboratory that they've made with fake machines with lights flashing on and off and they're operating them. And it's kind of awesome because Mark is like, a sex symbol in it, but he's so weird in it too. He's doing all these kind of like groovy, sexy moves and wiggling his, his hips and shoulders. Like he's some sort of star, but it's so weird and off-putting that it's just, I do think it's incredibly sexy. <laughs> sure. Um, no argument there. I also love like the crude animation in there. Like 
They're like potatoes. I couldn't figure out what that was for years. Yeah, potatoes playing the teeth of a hippo. Yeah. Like, like a marimba. Uh, like, yeah. Just, yeah. But I love things like they would have, that would be a green screen kind of effect. And then all of a sudden, somebody, like one of Devo, would just show up in the corner of it, just looking at it, like really weird. And I just love those little things where it's like, they're they're just weirdos. They're just, yes. they're stuffing this full of weird shapes, body shapes and dances and things. They have that thing where they have a little baby in the film and the baby gets born, flies through the air, and then they throw a doll to Mark Mothersbaugh who's supposed to catch the baby in this waiting pool. And then they, they, they throw this baby doll to him. It goes into the water and then he takes the real baby. They cut to that and he like pushes the baby back into the water to get the shot. And you're just like, wow, that is super mm. weird and ambitious and uncomfortable, of course. I think that was maybe their idea of a single for Duty Now for the Future when they dropped that. That makes like sense. If that, was the first, that was the first video they did. But again, this is before MTV. This was before there was any need to have music videos. Yeah, you're right. There was nowhere to play it. Well, I mean, what did they do with it? They showed it in their concerts. Yeah, exactly. And the live footage that's interspersed throughout it is amazing, too. Again, Devo at their just height of energy and figuring out, like, what each song needs um, physically. Because each song is kind of staged. They they would, right. they kind of had, each song would be like, okay, here's what's going to happen. We're going to move like this. We're going to do this. We're going to go over here. And they were also, I thought it was so cool that all their stages were like multi-purpose. Like they, it would start, they maybe be backlit. And then later they would like light these, they would lay the lights down and they'd stand on top of them. Or for new traditionalists, they would have, you know, these, these Roman columns with, with um, treadmills that they would walk on. And mm -hmm. then, you know, they, they would pull the front of the Roman columns off and it would be a different lighting source. Or when they did, oh no, it's Devo. And we're doing one of the first things that was like live sync with, their animated videos just playing with the screen and they were way ahead of everyone in terms of an actual show a real element of theater in there totally i don't i don't think that was probably by accident i think i think that was very well intended from yeah. what i could gather uh you know who else was doing theatrical things in live shows at that time maybe david bowie uh yeah, but with high tech, they were also just like, right. what can we do? How can we push this visually? Even something as simple as a treadmill on stage was so right. perfectly Devo. You're like, of course, they have to walk the entire time to get up to the mic to sing. It's like we're slaves to the industry because a lot of pretty early on, and this happens in the first short film that's not music that's put in this. It's just about how much they hate the music industry. And mm -hmm. so the first thing that happens, you see Big Daddy Know-It-All calling Rod, Rod Reuter, is that his name? What's his name? Rod Reuter. Right. Yeah. And he's basically like, I don't like Devo. I don't like the new outfits. They make me sick. Get him back in their yellow classic outfits or I'm going to have to clean house. And, right. and Rod Reuter's like, I, yes, Big Daddy Know-It-All, you know, like, of course, you know. <laughs> 
Daddy Know It All. It's so amazing. And the people they cast in it, like the guy who plays right. Big Daddy Know It All, I'm like, I have no idea who that is. But he is just this huge mogul looking guy that that I could imagine they were like, that's who we deal with all the time at the label. I love line deliveries from non-professional actors personally. Again, you know, let's chalk that up to a Devo influence. There's mm-hmm. just something kind of amazing that that happens, you know. You also saw it in the work of John Waters' films. In fact, sure. early on, I believe Devo was paired with like screenings of John Waters' Pink Flamingos. Like, wow, I know I have a flyer somewhere that it's it's early seventies, uh, you know, and uh, early on in, in, in Devo's career, it makes total sense. They're playing some uh, state university, and they're it's like. Devo on stage, and then Pink Flamingos film screening of you know of, of, of John Waters' Pink Flamingos. You know, amazing. How much can you take? You know, like, yeah. Trying to blow college kids' minds here, you know. Ah. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, again, like someone like Edith Massey in John Waters' films is the perfect example of you know, a non-professional actor delivering a line. There's just magic there. I talked to Chuck about that because he did he used a lot of non-professional actors in his stuff. He did a film for Suicide Commandos called Burn It Down. He's just the it's like 30 seconds of just people he dragged out of bars and put them in front of a colored screen. And they're going like, burn it down, burn it down. And then the music starts. And, you know, he he, it was amazing. He got the they found a house that was going to get burned and they just put the band in front of it in the dark and lit them with a couple lights and filmed it a couple times. And they're like, all right, that's the video. It's, it's so funny. I'm interviewing him for an upcoming episode and we were going to talk ironically yesterday, but he met somebody at a bus stop who took him to this party and he started documenting (laughs) these people. And he's like, I'm so sorry, but like, I'm he's doing this portrait series now is what he's doing. He's 80 right now. He's 80. Wow. And what he's doing is he's doing these portrait series and he's like, can I postpone? And I'm like, oh, my God, make your make your art. Do it. But I just love that to this day. He's still yeah. finding weirdos and going out. That's 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 really inspirational. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you don't retire and rest on your laurels. You still at 80 beat the streets for the freaks and uh, find find their world and, and yeah document it totally put it on the, put it on the uh, on the big screen I, again this is this is what I was doing as a child and, and and really out of necessity there there really wasn't much you know you could you could put together but you it really sort of had me looking you know, again, for just the weirdest kids I could find. And I was just going for that. And this was before punk rock for me. It was like my, my my aesthetic was already punk before I was punk, you know, it's, it's, it was just, just what it is, what it was. And sort of, I mean, Andy Warhol, you know, did that too. It, it, It was so much of just like, you know, Finding the freaks. Yeah. And I think, you know, Chuck and Jerry and Mark obviously 
saw each something in each other. And I know that that Jerry and Mark, when they were at Ohio State, would basically stay in character for days. They would put on the masks and they would not like their friends would be like, okay, enough. And they would be like, no, I'm a baby. You know, and they would eat like a baby and they would run around like a baby. And they and people were like, oh, my God, enough. But they just couldn't help themselves. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, that you there for some reason, one of the great things about talking to people on this podcast is the things that people have picked are things that are just baked into their DNA and they couldn't help it. It was going to find right. them. And that also <laughs> means meeting other people in your scene. All of a sudden you're like, I'm I know there are other people out there. If, if right. there are these weirdos in Ohio doing this. I, I'm, there's got to be someone here. Oh, I wanted to ask you one thing about this scene, though, real quick, if it's, that's okay. Um, okay, sure. So they talked to Big Daddy Know-It-All, and this next scene really upset me, and it still upsets me, but it's like basically Club Devo. It's like they're the monkeys in this weird industrial space. There's this weird red ball floating up and down, and they're looking at pictures of people covered with sores and acne. I mean, just like the worst cases imaginable. And they're like, oh. Double-faced dog boys. Yeah, exactly. Double-faced dog boys. And they're like, oh, Adam, what a head. You're the best. Disease is punishment. You know, they shot that in Century City at the, at the top floor. The Twin Towers in Century City, which looked a lot like the Twin Towers in New York City, but a smaller version of it. Oh, my I God. Know because as a kid, when they were when they were just finishing that building, me and my friends would go in there and and uh, most of the building was vacant. And I remember stumbling into that space. So when I saw that scene, I immediately recognized it from my, you know, teenage stomping around. Oh, my God. I never knew that. Breaking into <laughs> buildings and what so forth. So I recognized that location. Yeah, the big, the big uh, giant red ball that would yeah. just seemingly bounce in slow motion and and uh and they talk about going to club devo like club devo is this place where they meet and hang out and exchange beers. yeah yeah did you ever buy anything from club devo uh you know i don't think so i remember writing devo i remember i wrote them really early on and i sent them a photo but i did acquire a lot of that stuff just from around. Yeah, I have. Quite yeah, a few and it of those was badges. cheap. Like you could get a, right. a hat for five bucks, a Devo, you know, flower pot hat for five bucks and, or an action vest for seven. And I remember I've had all those things through the years, but like, yeah. I don't even know where I acquired them from. <laughs> yeah, they're amazing. What a cool sense to basically have something. It was the first time I ever collected something was getting stuff from Devo and their club. Because they would have these unique things like Muzak tapes, like Muzak right. versions of all their songs, or a Devo action vest, which was right. this like puffy jacket with a strap that you put under your crotch and attached to your back. And I remember I almost wore it to school one day and I was like, this thing underneath my legs is going to be a wedgie machine. Right. So I I didn't wear it, sadly. But, um, but yeah, I thought it was really, really smart of them to just make this stuff as cheap as possible. But I love that, you know, they go to this meeting with Rod Reuter, who's basically, you need to come in here. 
One of the things I say a lot in my life still is they put his voice through the voice stress analyzer. They're like, put it through the voice stress analyzer. And they flip the switch and he's like, oh, yeah, we love you guys. Big Daddy Know-It-All would kill for you. And they're like, oh, yeah, we do it all for you, Rod. Which, of course, was an advertising slogan for either McDonald's or Burger King at the time. Oh, I don't remember that. We do it all yeah. for you, Rod. We do it all for you. Yeah. Actually, I think it was McDonald's. Yeah. Of, of course. course. No, Tivo, Tivo took things out of TV commercials and put them in songs. Again, that's something I, I noticed as, as a young spud myself. And just like, right. of course. I mean, Madison Avenue, just all the programming that's going on, all the manipulation that's going on sure. through advertising. Devo's putting him into song lyrics. Hold the pickles, hold the lettuce. Special orders don't upset us. <laughs> all we ask is that you let us serve it your way. They use those lyrics up too much paranoia is on the first album. <laughs> but this meeting they have with Rod Reuter is one of my, like, I love, I'm so glad that you love these little movies they made within the movie. They go to this this um, meeting and Rod's playing this song by Parcheesi, this new group called She Didn't Know I Was a Midget, which was an old Devo demo. But it's yes. so funny. And he's like, why can't you be more like this band? They're hot. They're hot. Why can't you be more like them? And and Bob one goes, well, I guess we like ideas. <laughs> I could just imagine them taking this stuff verbatim from these meetings. Do you know the story about Johnny Lydon and Devo with Virgin I've Records? Heard about it, yes. Like, uh, what was it? Rick Branson wanted to make uh, Lydon be Devo's frontman. Yeah, he flew them down to Jamaica. Sex Pistols broke up. Yeah. And Mark said they all got really stoned with Branson. And he's like, did you like the Sex Pistols? And they're like, yeah, they're a great band. That's a bummer. They broke up. And they're like, in the next room is Johnny Lydon. He's ready to become the new singer of Devo. And we've got press ready to go. They said it was the most high they'd ever been. And they were like, ah. Uh. But they Devo really controlled all their stuff. I mean, even on that first album, they drove Brian Eno crazy because they wouldn't, mm -hmm. they wouldn't let him change anything from their demos. They wanted everything to sound exactly like their demos. And he got a few things in there, like the Ramayana monkey chant on Jocahomo and things like that. I heard that he had, he had layered a lot of stuff in and Devo just took it out. Yes. Like, yes. Maybe some of the stuff that remained, maybe by some of the stuff in Space Junk. It almost sounds like what uh, Eno did with David Byrne a few years later with uh, My Life and the Bush of Ghosts. Absolutely. The, those weird chants going on in Space Junk. I wonder if that's Eno's input. I'm not even sure. I'm assuming it is. But I know that Eno had dubbed in a bunch of stuff and the band took most of it out. Yeah, Mark in an interview recently was talking that he found some old stuff and he was kind of like, oh, why did we take this out? Like, it's cool. Supposedly, there's recordings that are that, that, that exist. That, yeah. I would love to hear that. Oh, my God. I'm dying to. But he did keep a couple things in, like the sound at the beginning of Uncontrollable Urge that is somebody holding a, uh, a guitar cord. It was like a just an electrical failure signal that they just did. They, you know, they stumbled upon. And yeah, like you said, the chants and Jocko Homo and things like and space junk. But. Yeah, right. I think they were really controlling of their identity and their artwork and what they wanted to do. And they were on Warner Brothers, you know, and so they right. were it was like a deal with the devil for them, you know, and I feel like their entire career was kind of like just kind of throwing shit at the label, too. <laughs> they just did not were mm -hmm. never happy.
with with their relationship. You could talk to Captain Beefheart about that. <laughs> I wish I could. I wish I could. But I mean, I it's, mean, it's not know. a new story, you know. Right. But it but it is interesting that so much of their art was them kind of uh they were really into making Warner Brothers uncomfortable. It's kind of like how the residents, when they were uh, first forming, seeked out Warner Brothers and sent them sent them their music. And Warner Brothers returned it to them, not having a name, you know, saying, return to the residents of this address. And so that's where they got their name. That's great. That's great. The other thing I love is the scene ends. So they, they kind of they're fighting in this this conference room, and eventually he kicks them out. Rod Ruder kicks the band out, and they meet in this really weird looking bar that's got like turning mirrors in it. I don't is that in L.A. too? Do you know what that is? That space? I think that was supposed to be Club DeVoe. Okay, Club DeVoe, but I, I don't think. know where they shot it. Yeah. It's amazing looking, and it's so great. One of my favorite lines in anything that has really informed me is. The first thing they do is they sit down and they're talking and Mark's like, oh, man, just wait till we get a recombo DNA lab. They got these bubble eyed dog boys down in the valley. I don't know how they put these things together. And then Jerry's like, all right. All right. Yeah, we'll get to that. But let's talk about the meeting. Bubble eyed dog boys was like that to me. I was like, I just it it created such theater in my head. It was also hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it totally. was also funny as fuck. And um <laughs> Again, very, very intriguing. It's amazing someone say like Neil Young that that saw something in Devo and brought Devo in uh, to be a part of his film that he was making at the time, Human Highway. Yeah, which Devo excised their clip out of. Uh, they did a cover of uh, "Worried Man," which yep. I believe is a standard song from fifties, forties, maybe um, way back. Uh, and uh, that bit where Neil brings in Devo and they jam on Hey, Hey, My, My. Oh, my God. Yeah. And Boogie Boys in a crib singing. And it's just one of the most out there moments in in late 70s rock, if, if you ask me. And, and that's also in the Neil's film, Human Highway. And uh, someone like Neil seeing the same things in Devo. It's just like, you know, this old guy from the 60s, that, that would have been my only view of Neil at the time. Uh, but uh, but then that, you know, it adhered me to Neil. Then I started paying attention to Neil. Human Highways is nuts. If, if anyone out there <laughs> has not seen it, it's Dennis Topper at his most unhinged. Uh, Dean Stockwell is in it. Yeah. This is amazing casting. It's just a train wreck of a movie, but like, it looks great though. Yeah, it's. I used to have a bootleg of it, and then when it first got released on Laserdisc, yeah, I, I of course bought that. And it's a rough watch though. It's it's a it's it's hard, and it's weird in that period where some of the older artists, sixties artists, were feeling that turn of seventy nine into eighty, and totally. feeling that, like you know. Neil going, I've got to go new wave. Like, and he put yeah. out that album Trans and like incorporating things from Devo and Kraftwerk and yeah, all this other weirdo stuff. But like, I mean, that's almost a forgotten thing. But like, 
Paul McCartney did temporary secretary totally at the same time. And again, it's all influenced by this Devo thing. 7980, it was like radio chain. Cars, Gary Newman, V-52s, right. you know, um, Devo. Gary Newman. But you would hear these songs next to the Pointer Sisters or next to Chic on the radio. Like, it was on pop radio all of a sudden. All this stuff was kind of getting jumbled. Cars was a huge hit. That was everywhere. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. And again, he was on Saturday Night Live as well. See, seeing all these, these, these older artists trying to figure out what new wave is. I'm like, can we get in on this? Yeah. It's an interesting time. Yeah, and I think the big difference between Human Highway and The Men Who Made the Music is that I don't think Neil is very funny. Like, Devo has a really great sense of humor. In Human Highway, like, Neil's humor is really slapsticky and kind of goofy and, like, it's it's just doesn't... You can't pull it off in a way that Devo... Like when they when they land their jokes, they're really they they it works. But you could see Neil's obsessiveness and interest in Devo throughout it, even though yeah, he's kind of just a big old goof. Yeah, yeah. You know? um, but <laughs> and I love him for it, you know. But endearing, and and uh, I don't know if you have ever seen uh, Neil's other films. Like uh, he did this film in the eighties that he shot himself on VHS called muddy track. No. And, uh, it, it, it expounds further on, on, on Neil as a goof. Um, wow. Yeah. It's, it, it's quite a, it's quite something to uh, see and seek out if you can find it. Never been officially released. Were there any bands that tried to, Ape Devo's sound or energy that you think succeeded? There were a couple things that K-Rock would play. I don't even remember the names of the artists, uh-huh. but there were some bands that were clearly trying for that freedom of choice sound. Uh, I wish I could remember the name of the band, but their song was called UFO. It's a UFO. Um <laughs> Oh, have you ever heard the Village People album? Uh, 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 oh, God, what's it called? Is it a later one? A later one? Yeah. It, no. It's, it's, it's this crazy 1980-81 Village People album where they try to re-image themselves. And on, on, on the album cover art, they look like they're trying to be Spandau Ballet meets Wow, Duran Duran or, or Steve. They were like totally new romantic re-look. Wow. But the music... It's totally Devo. Listen to the song Food Fight okay. or Big Mac. Um, it, it, it's a train wreck of a record. I'm going to put Food Fight. This is, I'm going to play Food Fight right here. Thanks for listening to Revolutions Per Movie. This is the end of part one of my two-part episode with Dave Markey talking about Devos, the men who make the music. Next week, part two will cover such things as the magic of drummer Alan Myers, Dave Markey's work with Nirvana and Kurt Cobain's love for Devo, the mystery of Spaz Attack, the LA punk club scene, sneaking in the shows, and the actual truth about de-evolution. 
So come next week and shrivel up under Daddy's cap as we continue our talk about Devo's The Men Who Make the Music. And remember, Revolutions Per Movie is a completely independent affair, and the best way to support us is over at patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie, where we have bonus episodes every week. Hope you'll go check it out, and we'll see you next week for part two of our talk about Devo with Dave Markey. Bye. Bye.